Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, March 29th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On today's financial show, we're going to take a look at the latest news regarding banks, dividends, and share buybacks. SoFi and Robinhood plan to bring IPOs to the investing masses. And speaking of IPOs, there's one on the horizon that investors should probably be aware of. We'll wrap up the show with a listener question. Joining me this week, he's back. He's springtime fresh and certified financial planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, what's up? How's it going? Hopefully, it's a little less polleny where you are. <laughs> no, it's it's pretty polleny here, man. I tell you, but I mean, I'm not complaining. I, I like. I'm a big fan of the change in seasons. Um, I, I don't know that there's a season that I really like more than the other. I like the change in seasons. So when spring comes to me, that is that is a lot of fun. And you know, I was sitting outside on my front porch drinking some coffee, and we have a Japanese cherry blossom. Uh, out in our front yard that is just in full bloom right now. And it is just the most beautiful thing. Uh, the blooms are so short-lived, it should be criminal. But you know what I was also thinking? It's a nice little alarm clock. It's a nice little master's <laughs> alarm clock, Matt. Master's just around the corner. That is true. Um, and I know you've been to South Carolina during poly's pollen season. Yeah, I grew um, up there. <laughs> with, 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 with all the yellow cars and, oh, yeah. and all that going around. Yep, yep. We're getting it up here. It may not be quite as bad down there, but yeah, yeah. We, we definitely are dealing with it up here now, too. But uh, yeah, like I said, it's, it's, nice. it's nice to see the change in seasons. Uh, well, Matt, let's jump into this week's uh, stories. We, we have one to, to start off with here, and, and this is obviously very relevant to uh, the greater world of financials. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, says that banks have, have improved their capital positions and should be allowed to continue to buy back their own shares, uh, as, as well as paying and, and growing those dividends. I mean, this is this is welcome news uh, from from someone who clearly plays plays an important role in 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 you know what these banks are able to do and what they what they're able to not do. Um, to me, I, I, this was kind of a matter of of when, not really if, but but I mean to to see this statement is is encouraging, particularly given given the way twenty twenty really threw a curveball at, at pretty much everyone. Yeah, and I mean, banks were some of the hardest hit stocks when when the pandemic started, um, and for good reason. People thought that they wouldn't be able to pay people wouldn't be able to pay their loans, which I mean, for a business that loans money, that's pretty devastating. <laughs> uh, and, and I mean, and not just that, but interest rates collapsed to almost nothing. So not only are people are banks not at risk of not getting paid back on their loans, but the interest they're collecting on the loans that they are being paid on is a lot lower than it used to be. So they kind of got a one-two punch there. Um, but as we go on, it really looks like banks aren't being affected as harshly as we thought they might be. One, um, there were government programs to pretty much suspend loan payments, you know, um, the mortgage forbearance that was included in the CARES Act, for example, that really helped people keep their heads above water financially. Um, I know my aunt was having trouble. She lost her job because of COVID and was having trouble paying paying some bills. They didn't give her any hard time. They just She asked if she could postpone her auto loan for a few months, and they just did it. 
So banks have been really great about working with customers, even when they didn't legally have to. Um, the government's been, I mean, three rounds of stimulus money, that's kind of unprecedented. Um, the unemployment insurance boost, that was also kind of unprecedented. Um, so people were generally able to pay their bills, not quite as, the default rates weren't quite as low as they were pre-pandemic, but not nearly as bad as we thought. And now interest rates are starting to tick up, which is pretty terrible for every technology stock in the market, as we've seen. <laughs> but for banks, that's actually pretty welcome news because we're getting interest rates back to a somewhat normal level. So when banks loan money and customers pay it back, they're actually making some money as well. So it's looking pretty good. I agree with Janet Yellen that banks should be able to get started with this. The Fed came out right afterwards and said that banks on June 30th provided that they pass a stress test. Remember, the stress test happened in June each year. Um, if banks pass a stress test, then they can start resuming buybacks and share dividend and, and dividends at normal levels. Um, so banks have been able to pay dividends this whole time. Pretty much every bank stock that was paying a dividend is still doing so. Um, if you remember, Wells Fargo cut their dividend because they weren't allowed to pay the full one. But banks have been paying dividends. No banks have been buying back stocks. So that's really the, the big X factor there. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, that's important too, because I think for most people, for most investors, I mean, you would, you would invest in banks. I mean, that would be really sort of the crux of the thesis. I mean, these aren't your newfangled tech companies that are, that, that are going to be growing by leaps and bounds, right? I mean, you really are. Part of the thesis is the dividends, the income, and, and the share repurchases returning value over longer periods of time. And so, I mean, it, it, to that point on Wells Fargo, because if listeners will remember, I mean, Wells Fargo is the, that's the stock that you really, that's the financial stock that you picked for 2021. Remember, we we had our show at the beginning of the year, and and, um, and Wells Fargo was your, your, your financial stock to watch for 2021. Um, it Partly because they had been coming from such a, a a a dark place, I guess is the best way to put it. I mean, they've really been going through a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of trouble there recently, and and it seemed like shares were reflective of that. I mean, it's been a decent year for Wells Fargo so far. Shares up about twenty eight percent, outpacing the market nicely. Uh, it, it feels like there there could be plenty of room for for Wells to run here for the rest of the year, particularly given this news. Yeah, and if you think it's been good so far, wait until they're approved to buy back, say, 10% of their shares over the next year, <laughs> or to or to bring their dividend back. I mean, even their CEO said it's going to take a little while for the dividend to get back to normal levels, Yeah, or to pre-pandemic levels. But, I mean, there's no reason they won't be approved to you know spend a few billion on share buybacks. Yeah, um, I'd imagine. And, I mean, and their, their stock's still trading at a pretty big discount to book value. So, I mean, it, they're buying their assets back for, you know, very cheaply when they're using share buybacks. So, I think there's a, a lot of room for value creation just in the buybacks and dividends, not necessarily in growth of the, growth of the business. That's, you know, a bonus if Wells Fargo is eventually allowed to grow. Remember that Federal Reserve penalty that says they can't grow is still in place. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it, it, it's neat. I mean, it's not just the big banks, too. I mean, I, looking at it, uh, just, just banking in general, I mean, we, we have been talking about this all the way into the end of 2020, particularly as we looked back and saw that, that financials were one of the very few underperformers for the year. And that was very understandable, but it was also... It was also plain to see there were some potential catalysts for banks in general to start 
coming back around i mean particularly on the interest rate side but but also as the as the economy gets back up and running and, and it's like i said it's not just the big banks right i mean ameris bank core again another another bank that we follow here on the show a stock that i own i mean but a much smaller bank i mean it's just a small cap when you when you look at it compared to something like a wells fargo but but they're going to absolutely see the benefits from that rising interest rate environment and they were coming from a little bit of a dark place as well just the general the general market malaise, right there, where where, where it uh, pertained to to banks, and and they were just digesting that big Fidelity acquisition. Uh, to me, that was another stock at the time seemed really uh, seemed, seemed really kind kind of cheap. And, and, and you look year to date, I mean, Ameris Bank Corp up forty percent. And looking at their most recent results, I mean, it does seem like they are poised uh, for a for a strong year as well. So nice to see even those smaller banks bouncing back as well. Yeah, and it's it's pretty much any bank that that is primarily a lender, which Ameris is definitely in that category. Like for example, Bank of America isn't just a lender; they have an investment banking division, they have a trading desk, they have a wealth management division. You know, Wells Fargo is primarily a lender. Ameris is primarily a lender, and most smaller banks, to your point, are primarily lenders. And that's really the the subset of the banking industry we saw really get crushed, and who has the most to, to benefit from things normalizing. And you know Janet Yellen's comments are really the first step towards towards banks getting back to normal. Well, well, that's good to see. That's good to see. Uh, Matt SoFi and Robinhood recently just announced here that they are going. They're they're coming up with tools. They're coming up with a platform that will offer investors the ability to invest in IPOs. So uh, for for folks wondering what do you mean exactly by that i mean i could invest in ipos well you can you can invest in a company when it goes public and it starts trading on the open market but oftentimes you're not going to get in on that ipo price right you're you're going to be as an individual investor you're going to get in there <laughs> after the pop and oftentimes uh, that that means a lot of money is left on the table um but but it looks like sofi and robinhood are trying to sort of crack that nut so to speak in giving individual investors more the opportunity to get in there on those IPOs and really benefit from these companies going public. Let's talk a little bit about this because it's traditionally an opportunity that's that's only been available for well, let's just call it what it is, folks with a lot of folks with a lot of money. Uh, it, it seems it seems like a really neat idea. I mean, I I I I can't really say that uh, I see a whole heck of a lot of downside but I'm a little conflicted. I feel like I trust SoFi more than I trust Robinhood at this point. Am I, am I misguided there? <laughs> well, well, we'll talk about the products in just a second. But first, let me talk, to your point, let me tell you why this is so important. Um, I guess arguably the, most, the biggest IPO to happen in the past year would be Airbnb. I, that, you could argue that, but I'd say that's one of the biggest. Okay, so Airbnb went public. They set their IPO price at $68 a share. So that's what institutional investors, that's what Goldman Sachs sold shares to their clients for. That's what all the, as you put it, the rich. I, I certainly didn't get into, into the Airbnb <laughs> IPO. Nor did I. So all of the, the, the investment banking clients paid $68 a share. You know what the lowest price on the open market Airbnb has traded for in the Something time like, since I, its IPO? I, I, I feel like it's 90. I'm just, I'm spitballing 90. 121.50. Golly, that's the cheapest anybody, but like you and me, would have been able to pay for it, and that's if we timed it perfectly. Sheesh! So almost double. So that's why this is so important. There's a real kind of let's call it a, a 
an imbalance in the IPO market toward, toward rich investors. Yeah. Um, so I'll talk more about SoFi's platform because they gave more details than Robinhood did. Um, so SoFi, again, I, I prefer SoFi to Robinhood. I'm a SoFi customer. This might get me to be a SoFi Invest customer. Um, so SoFi is going to actually become an underwriter of these IPOs like Goldman Sachs is, like Fidelity is, and like, you know, like the big investment banks are. Now, a lot of investment banks are underwriters, like Bank of America is commonly an underwriter on a lot of these big IPOs, but that doesn't mean they sell their shares to anyone who wants them. Like you said, they usually go to the rich. SoFi wants to be an underwriter like these other investment banks are, but they want to sell them to anybody. They've, they've already sent out an email to their clients about this. Um, I got a, a SoFi email about the subject. Um, they're offering this to any clients with over $3,000 in their investment accounts. Not necessarily that you want to put $3,000 into an IPO, $3,000 total in assets in your accounts. So they're opening this up pretty widely. Um, the CEO, I don't know if you're familiar with this, uh, CEO Anthony Noto of SoFi yeah, was- absolutely. He was uh, formerly head of uh, tech media and telecom at Goldman Sachs. And he actually presided over the Twitter IPO. Yeah. Well, and I mean, to your point, I think he was also the COO at Twitter, I believe. Um, but uh, even more so, he was the CFO, I think, of the NFL, wasn't he? Yeah. He's a, he's, he, has, he has a big IPO background. I mean, you know, very impressive resume. We could you know spend the whole show talking about what he's done in the past and stuff like that. But at, at Goldman, he, he supervised over 50 IPOs himself. So he gets this process. So that's what makes me really confident is that he wouldn't be promising this if he couldn't deliver. Um, Robinhood said they want to create a similar platform. They actually announced it first, to be fair. Robinhood said they were going to bring IPOs to the masses first. It's unclear whether they actually want to become an underwriter, whether they want to work out some deal to get access to shares early, something like that. They did say they want to carve out a block of their own shares when they go public um, to sell to their own clients, which I'm... Um, not uncommon. I mean, Coinbase said something similar. Airbnb actually did give uh, their hosts a, a way to get in on the IPO. Um, so that's not too uncommon. But uh, th just opening up general IPOs to the masses, because I mean, I use TD Ameritrade. I think you said you do too. Um, so they are they offer some IPOs. But if I'm being honest, it's never the ones that I really want to get into. <laughs> um, you know, it'll be like some random, like small healthcare company that I've never heard of that they they offer some shares. It's not Airbnb. It's not DoorDash. It's not. It's not even the really the the high profile SPACs that I would want to get into that that they that they offer public. So being able to really have my pick of IPOs, that could be a reason to move over to SoFi. But at the same time, kind of like we saw when Robinhood started commission free investing. Now, when's the last time you paid a commission to trade a stock? I yeah, I mean, it feels like it's feels like it's been forever. I mean, in reality, it's been a year, I guess. But but it that was a nice that was a nice move. <laughs> there was a big ripple effect through the industry, and I could see something similar happening here. If enough customers leave, like the TD Ameritrade's and Merrill Edge and Schwab's and all those, to go to SoFi because they're offering IPOs, how long before they figure out, hey, we shouldn't just sell these shares to the rich customers? Maybe maybe we should sell them to whoever wants them. So yeah, and you know, I mean, I think that's what's neat with banks, uh, with companies like SoFi, and these 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 sort of these new tech driven financial services companies, whether they're their own banks or whether they're just partnering up with financial institutions. It's really great to see 
these companies focused on such an important issue and bringing bringing financial tools to the masses making it easier than ever to to manage your financial life whatever that may be whether it's just managing a checking account paying your bills investing saving budgeting whatever it may be it's, it's it's really neat to see all of the investments being made in this space and and I think honestly I mean that's going back to SoFi and, and leadership there with Anthony Noto I mean that's to me there's a lot of trust that I afford SoFi simply because of him because I've not only I mean I've followed him along through his through his career and what he's done with Goldman what he's done with Twitter or what he's done at SoFi I mean knowing his his history in, in in his job responsibilities with the NFL I mean this this isn't his first rodeo so to speak right I mean he has a lot of experience in this space and he also seems to be very very uh, customer focused and that to me um, that that can really be the differentiators when you are so customer focused. I mean, it's one thing to say it, but it's another thing to really do it and really execute on it. And to me, uh, at least to this point, Anthony Noto and SoFi are absolutely executing on that customer service front in bringing new tools and services and products to people that need them the most. Yeah, and I'd like you just mentioned services and products. SoFi is a lot more than Robinhood when it comes to products and services. And that's, I think, why I like them a lot more. They're, they're really, you get the vibe that they care about their users' finances. Um, I mean, they started out as a, as a lender, um, primarily student loans was what they started out, like consolidation loans and things like that. They got into personal loans. They have a, there's like a whole financial community. Um, they take other credit information into account. You know, they take the user's like personal story into account. Um, they had member meetups to help with personal finance before COVID. Like there were there were member meetups in pretty much every major city for SoFi members. Um, it's just like a real like community of of finance, and it's like the stock trading is just kind of to complement everything. And and they're they they try to emphasize long term investment a lot more than Robinhood does. I feel like Robinhood is a trading platform. They, I think they've used that word. Um, <laughs> yeah. SoFi, it's called SoFi Invest. It's not called SoFi Trading. Um, they're they're designed for long-term investors. And really, that's what IPO investing should be for. I know uh, TD Ameritrade, for example, penalizes you if you sell your IPO shares, um, if you get them. Like if you're a rich a rich client, you get your IPO shares and you, you churn your IPO, as they call it. Um, you get penalized and you'll get excluded from future deals. They're, they're, they're really long-term. And that's what I, SoFi really conveys like a long-term priority. Yeah, I like I like that point a lot. I mean, I know some folks have just sort of d- d- just consider it semantics and say, well, trade versus invest, big deal. They're really the same thing, and and honestly, they're not though. Um, and I mean, I mean, I think I think the more the longer the longer you you've invested, the more you realize very very clearly. I mean, they are absolutely two very different things. And uh, to me, I mean, that's that's an excellent message that SoFi conveys. Um, I wonder if TD Ameritrade ought to consider like a rebranding. I mean, TD Amerivest? I don't know. <laughs> food for thought. Uh, Matt, just, just when you thought it was safe to forget about WeWork, it's back. <laughs> yes, the flexible office space specialist has decided it's time to go public again. And of course, Matt, it's going public via SPAC. Is WeWork going to give SPACs a bad name? It depends. Um, <laughs> it, it's not in my portfolio, which is why I could talk about it right now. Um, but so 
on one hand, it might look like you're getting a discount. Um, we work first wanted to go public in 2019, if you remember. Um, and at the time, Goldman Sachs said that their valuation should be about $65 billion. Wow. The SPAC IPO that they're doing is at a valuation of $9 billion, and that includes the new money being put in. So is that a discount, or did it just like come back down to earth a little bit? It still seems kind of pricey, honestly, given what we know today, but go on. Right. So the SPAC is called BOX Acquisition Corporation. Ticker symbol is B-O-W-X. It's by a venture capital fund called Bow Capital. Um, so it values WeWork at $9 billion, including debt, and including the $1.3 billion in new capital that's being injected into the business. That includes almost half a billion dollars from the SPAC and another $800 million from a pipe. Um, if you remember, pipe is kind of that investment round that takes place at the same time with um, you know private investors. It's kind of really a confidence booster if you see all these big inst- institutions are willing to put their money in. Um, so after this is done, WeWork will have $1.9 billion of cash and another $550 million line of credit. That may sound like a lot. WeWork lost $3.2 billion in 2020 and $3.5 billion in 2019. Well, no, that sounds like a lot. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, in 2020, 2020 was not a normal year for offices. Understand. So yeah. we can't really blame them for the 2020 losses. Um, if you remember after the, the IPO nonsense in 2019, uh, we worked their their CEO. They got rid of him. Uh, SoftBank ended up taking the majority stake, which they still own. Um, so the the new um, CEO has done a good job of cost cutting things like that. Out of that three point two billion, more than a billion of it was things like um, like impairment charges, write downs, you know, things like that. Like they got rid of a, some underperforming spaces, took a loss, things like that. So it was not as bad as it made it sound. They improved their free cash flow, which was still negative. They improved their free cash flow by $1.6 billion over 2019. Impressive given that there was a pandemic going on. Um, They ended 2020 with 47% of their buildings occupied, of their space occupied. That's not great. Um, They're projecting, you know, in, in all these SPAC deals, they make projections for a few years. Um, they're projecting it will be up to 90% occupancy by 2022. Their thesis is that the reopening in the post-COVID world will actually be a net benefit to co-working and flexible office spaces. When you think of it this way, say say you work for Twitter, who's already said that, that you could work remotely after the pandemic whenever you want. So you leave Silicon Valley, you go somewhere else, you get an apartment wherever, but then you still need a space to work. You don't want to work necessarily want to work from home every day. Um, like we've talked about it before, we both enjoy working at home sometimes, but we want the option not not to have to work at home. So people who are being told they can work from home permanently are going to take their companies up on that and leave the main office, but could work in these flexible or co-working spaces, which I can tell you firsthand are are, rel- are pretty affordable. I mean, I go to one. Um, so. They, they're thinking it could be a net positive for WeWork. The company still has a ton to prove. I mean, loss of $3.2 billion. Even if you get rid of all the impairment charges, it was only almost $2 billion last year. They have a lot to prove in terms of their path to profitability. And I don't care if they have $1.6 billion in the bank if they're losing billions of dollars every year. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't really help. So, no. you know, it just buys them a couple months of wiggle room. So I, I want to see them really have a path to profitability before I would ever consider putting my money in. 
I like co-working. I like more of the, you know, the mom and pops type co-working spaces like the one I go to with a real community feeling. It doesn't feel as, I guess, as sterile as as one of the corporate office spaces. Um, you know, same reason I like Full HQ. It doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel corporate. So, um, I mean, it, it's, I, I don't know if it's going to make it um, long term, but this definitely gives them new life. I'll, t- I'll tell you that much. Indeed it does. Indeed it does. Uh, Matt, before we wrap the show up, we have a question from a listener on Twitter I thought we could tackle here real quickly. And at Lee in Raleigh asks, Hi, Jason. Long time Motley Fool subscriber, podcast listener. Thank you, Lee. Appreciate that. I know you're big on McCormick. Yes, I am. And was wondering if you could explain on an upcoming show what's up with the statement of changes in beneficial ownership of securities that are currently pending. I saw it when I got the proxy statement. And Matt, thanks for the question, Lee. I really appreciate it. Uh, Matt, I think her question hits really in two ways. In one, she uses McCormick as a specific example. She had linked to the investor relations page, and, and there were all these Form 4s there, these SEC filings that are required uh, whenever insiders uh, purchase or, or sell, whenever they transact shares in the company. Um, so I think in, in, you know, on one, she's asking, in, in specific to McCormick, is this something to, to be concerned with? And then two, ultimately, what to make of insider selling in general? And, and I think it's it's a good question for a number of different reasons. And I thought it'd be one we could talk about for a minute here, because I think it's easy for folks to see insider selling and immediately think, whoa, something is up. That's a problem. That's a red flag. That's not really often the case, though, is it? No. Well, first of all, those those statements of beneficial ownership changes could be for or against. A lot of them are purchases. I'll let you speak about McCormick specifically, because I know that's your, that's your top of your watch list. Um, but so in the pandemic, especially, I saw a lot of my favorite companies, executives were buying hand over fist, um, store capital is an example where pretty much every executive bought shares when the pandemic started, uh, Ryman hospitality is another one where the CEO put, you know, millions of dollars of his own money into, into the stock at the the low prices. So they work both ways. That's the first point. Number two, there are a lot of reasons CEOs and other insiders, those are those are usually a company officer or a board member when you see a change in ownership. A lot of them get compensated with stock options. That's a big part of their compensation or restricted shares that can't be sold for a certain amount of time. When those mature, a lot of times they'll exercise them and immediately sell them, not necessarily because they don't believe in the company, because that's a part of their salary. And so let's say I give Jason restricted stock options. In two years, he could sell them. That makes it in his best interest to make the company perform really, really well over those two years. And then at the, at the end of those two years, though, he can exercise those options as part of his compensation. Doesn't mean he doesn't believe in the company. And usually these people have other, you know, each year this cycle repeats, they get more restricted stock and more options. And it, get, it incentivizes them to keep doing that. So a lot, I mean, uh, Jack Dorsey is a big one that you see this some, from time to time. Like there'll be, you know, stock options that expi- that expire and he'll sell them. Still, obviously still believes in his companies. We're working pretty much for free. Um, but, you know, it's it's a form of compensation. So the, the form four should tell you there's usually a code with the transaction that says if it was an open market sale, whether it was options 
exercised, whether they actually disposed of shares from their own portfolio, things like that. So I'd say, to make a long story short, it depends on the circumstances surrounding the sale and you know whether or not the, the person is still incentivized to to do their job well. You know, obviously, if an executive dumps 50% of their shares with no explanation, it, it should raise some eyebrows. But if, if they're exercising restricted shares and selling them and still own, you know, two or 3% of the company, then I wouldn't, you know, look too much into it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you really, you really nailed most of that there. I mean, I don't think there's anything really different in play with McCormick here. I mean, a lot of these Form 4s are uh, related to restricted stock units. I mean, they are just, it is a compensation thing. And, um, I mean, I, I think a perfect example. I mean, I tell I tell folks, you know, sometimes listen. I mean, we is, is the Motley Fool. I mean, the Motley Fool is not a publicly traded company, but we as employees, um, you know, do do get shares in in the company. Um, and it, it, you know, I've, I've sold shares in the Motley Fool before, and, and that's not to say that I don't believe in our company. Far from it. I mean, absolutely believe in the company, but it's a it's a part of compensation. And so it kind of goes back to that old uh, saw from Peter Lynch who. Uh, said, and I'm paraphrasing, but there are many reasons to sell and one reason to buy, right? I mean, everybody's a little bit different. They've got things going on in their lives, and, and this is compensation-related. People plan for projects at home or educational expenses, whatever it may be. Um, and, 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 I mean, it's also worth noting, too, I mean, oftentimes you'll see these, these – uh, these sales oftentimes are, are related to a, to a specific rule, uh, Rule 10b-5-1, which ultimately this is a, it's an SEC plan which allows the insiders of publicly traded companies to set up a trading plan to make those sales without creating the impression that they're trying to time them, right? Um, so, I think generally speaking, uh, looking for companies where there is strong insider ownership is a great thing to find. It's not a reason to invest. It's a nice thing to find. The bigger the company the more difficult it's going to be for insiders to hold a meaningful amount of those shares just because the company is is bigger. Um, and McCormick has been around for a long, long time. Uh, but but yeah, I, I mean, looking through the, the Form 4s, and I mean, McCormick is certainly not the only company um, where you see this. I mean, it, it, it looks like in most cases, these are restricted stock units where sales are uh, happening, and, and that's because they're a form of compensation. And then you can also see on those Form 4s, um, the the number of shares held by that individual after the sale, uh, and that can give you an idea of, of what kind of what kind of exposure they still have to the business. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't see anything here in in, in regard to McCormick's uh, form fours that that create any concern for me. But I mean, it's it's always something worth noting, right? I mean, it is. I think the knee jerk reaction is. Insiders are selling. There must be something wrong, uh, but it just—it's something that requires a little bit more uh, digging into. And I think understanding that, uh, again, like Peter Lynch said, there are a lot of different reasons to sell, and and you can't really hold them against people because in most cases it's compensation related, uh, and and we all, um, you know, we all have our plans, right? We all we all are budgeting for certain things. We have life events and uh, things that come up. So, uh, good question, Lee, and thank you for asking it. And uh, hopefully, that was helpful. And Matt, thank you for such a well-informed answer, as usual. Uh, but Matt, I think, you know what? I think that's going to do it for us this week. 
I, uh, I I think we've I think we've wrapped it up here. I don't uh, I don't know that we have much else to get into. So uh, listen, I'm I'm glad to see that you're back safe and sound. I'm glad you had a great time there in Vegas. You're able to go enjoy it. Um, hopefully hopefully we'll be able to connect here sooner uh, rather than later. But uh, yeah, look forward to next week. Yeah, I'm always glad to join you, and it was nice nice to take a break, but always good to be back. And now I'm finally starting to get caught up. <laughs> well, we'll let you get back to getting caught up. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to do it for us this week's uh, this week folks remember you can always reach out to us on twitter at mf industry focus or you can drop us an email at industry focus at fool.com as always people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and the motley fool may have formal recommendations for or against so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear thanks as always to tim sparks for putting the show together for us for matt frankel i'm jason moser thanks for listening and we'll see you next week <laughs>